I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. San Francisco is struggling to bring calm and focus to its school district. Still, the past few years have been dramatic, even on top of the struggles of pandemic learning. There have been lawsuits, policies that divided families, and a contentious school board recall election. The latest drama is about one of the newest board members, Anne Shu. She was appointed by Mayor London Breed in March. In late July, it was revealed that Shu commented in a questionnaire that one of the biggest challenges in educating black and brown students was their, quote, unstable family environments and the lack of parental encouragement to focus on learning. Shu has since apologized for her comments. I said things that unintentionally perpetuated harmful stereotypes. I made a mistake, and I'm deeply sorry. But many people have called for her resignation. Three San Francisco supervisors, the NAACP, the Teachers Union, and several other groups. Last week, the school board met and unanimously voted to formally admonish Shu over her remarks. The public comments from community members at that meeting became heated and highly charged. Black and brown families accused Shu of being unfit to serve the entire San Francisco student population. It's insulting and appalling to say that Latino families do not care about the education of their children. The reason for many Latinos even traveling to this country was in search of a better life for their children. While its shoe supporters argued her apology is enough and that they think her comments deserve consideration. She's not the problem. Chronically absent students are less likely to read at grade level, less likely to graduate, more likely to end up in prison. That's the problem. Be offended by that. Eventually, the meeting devolved into chaos and shouting, prompting the board president to clear the room. Today on Fifth Emission, I'm joined by Chronicle columnist Justin Phillips. In his latest piece, he argues that there's something blatantly missing from the heated debate over Anne Shu. Facts. He's here to offer some historical perspective on the educational experience of Black and Brown students and why blaming parents is both racist and misguided. Justin, so great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Justin, Anne Shu has been on this apology tour for her controversial comments. She herself has admitted that the comments were, quote, inherently biased. Is that a good first step? Yeah. I mean, me personally, I think it is. Because what you want in this moment is for someone to acknowledge the mistake that they made. If they make a comment like this, talk about what it inspired it, their own shortcomings, you know, as far as knowledge about a specific subject. And she's done this. And so, you know, if you're level-headed about it, this is a good first step. It's the first thing that you want to see, like a bit of honesty and a little bit of introspection. It was mostly symbolic, but last week the school board voted to formally admonish her. Shu even included herself in that vote. That meeting was chaotic, tense, and really displayed all the political factions in the city. What was your reaction to all that coverage? It was the same as you. You know, it, it was very revealing about those political factions in San Francisco. It was emotional. And, you know, it almost felt like there were different arguments, different points of anger that might not have been rooted exactly in the the basis of the scandal itself, which was the comment. Mm-hmm. But it was just an emotionally charged space. And yeah, I mean, that was the first thing I noticed. Like, I, I, I felt like there might have been 
a lot of arguments happening within that room at the same time. Right. And in your latest column, Justin, you argue that what's been missing in this debate is a true assessment of why Shu's comments were problematic. Importantly, you say that her comments just aren't true. There's been actual data and research that has shown the stereotype that black and brown parents don't care about education just isn't factual. Tell me more about that. Yeah. And that's kind of why you saw so many black and brown organizations come out and condemn these comments because those communities also know this isn't true. And you can use data. There have been studies where they ask parents of different races about their involvement in their children's education. And you'll see that Latino parents, Black parents, they are just as engaged, whether it comes down to PTA meetings, whether it's, you know, parent-teacher conferences, whether it's going to a school play, like the percentage of those parents who say they are engaged is similar to what white parents say. Mm -hmm. And so you have that information there, but then you also have the people who are living this truth every day, that they are engaged in their children's uh, academic success. They do care about what's happening in their schools. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't have kids, like there are support networks in these families. It could be a grandmother, it could be an uncle. Like there are people who are pushing for that academic success. So like a sweeping generalization of a comment can be triggering for a lot of folks. And so that's kind of what you saw in the reaction to this. And you also spoke to local educators that can back this up too, right? Right. So, you know, one of the places is Urban Ed Academy that's um, out of San Francisco. And one of their biggest missions as of late is to increase the number of Black male teachers there are in the teaching profession, because there aren't that many. Mm -hmm. And outside of that, more than a decade ago, when that organization was founded, they were a quote-unquote Saturday school. So they allowed kids from marginalized backgrounds to come to an academic setting on Saturdays, and they would get extra tutoring around subjects that they needed. And you know, black and brown parents would take these kids there on a regular basis. It was a huge success. Mm -hmm. And then that, after six years, morphed into other programs that occurred on the weekends. And they've still seen high engagement from parents and their kids. There are parents who look for these sources, like ways for their children to improve various areas of their academics. And I think that's important to note. So engagement from parents is one thing, but the academic proficiency gaps between white students and students of color are glaring. For example, according to San Francisco Unified School District data from last year, just to give a few examples, 34% of Latinos and 9% of Black students are reading at grade level compared to 85% of white students and 70% of Asian Americans. Another sobering stat in math, 81% of white and Asian American students were proficient compared with 41% of Black students and 55% of Latino students. So, Justin, in your column, you say that these specific sorts of inequities date back to before America was a nation. Break that down for me. Those are definitely, definitely troubling numbers. But when I say that it goes back to when this country was first founded, I'm talking about for Black people, it's a reference to when the Africans were first brought to this country in chains and how education or the idea that a slave could be knowledgeable was terrifying for white slave owners. So they created early systems then that ensured that Black people wouldn't have equal access to education. Mm -hmm. And then 
from there, just the evolution of racism and hate and exclusion that was the fabric of those slavery era policies, they continued for hundreds of years and becoming more broad and impacting all people of color or anybody that was not white, right? And so I always think about how this country was founded on the premise that all men are created equal. And when that was written, it was written by a bunch of white guys who only applied it to each other. Mm -hmm. And Black, Asian, Latino people, we have suffered uh, within that education system that they created that was founded on this idea of exclusion. And that goes all the way back to slavery. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate your column because you're serving a bit of a history lesson for folks. You know in your piece that San Francisco opened the state's first segregated school for Black children in the 1850s. The state of California enacted a ton of anti-Black and anti-Asian education laws that segregated them from the rest of the student population. Tell me more about how that has affected the resourcing of students' learning environments. That was part of a system of exclusion that went on after, you know, Black and Asian people were forced to build their own schools because white parents didn't want their children going to school with people of color. But once those public schools started to be integrated, like California pushed back. And that's where you also have segregation of neighborhoods. That's where that comes into play. So You'd have people of color who are largely relegated to specific areas. And, you know, white California would ensure that those areas were underserved, which means the schools that existed there would be underfunded, would not meet the needs of the students compared to like the more well-funded schools in wider areas. And so you had a lot of people of color who were living in these low-income areas that weren't getting the education opportunities that, that white people were getting. And that was by design. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. So, Justin, critics could argue that both Black and Asian populations have faced school segregation in the past, as you've highlighted, but that Asian students have managed to perform better, as shown in that latest district data that we just discussed. What would be your response to that? Yeah, I mean, the the response would be really, really complicated. And that is very true. Like, there are Asian students that do extremely well. And nationally, you'll even see data that shows you know, Asian students outperforming white students, even though we only focus on what white students are doing. Mm -hmm. But what I can directly reference in a response to that are some of the facts that we know. You get a better, higher quality education at schools that are really well-funded. And schools that are well-funded usually exist in more affluent neighborhoods where residents that live there, property taxes can go to funding these schools. And we also know uh, another fact is that there are a lot of Black students in San Francisco in the Bay Area who go to schools that are predominantly Black. And those schools usually have students that are lower income. They're in neighborhoods that are also low income. So those schools are usually underfunded. And the education experience that those students get is less than what would be at schools that are better funded, more affluent areas. So we know that disparity exists. That's part of this complicated answer. I know what isn't part of the answer is blaming parents for not supporting the academic success of the youth. 
And, you know, right now we just really need to focus on the success of the students. I would also add to that, Justin, because there's such a limited supply of disaggregated Asian education data that when you look at sort of socioeconomic lines within the Asian population, we can't just generally say all Asian students are performing better because sometimes we'll see Southeast Asian students aren't performing as well as their Chinese peers, for example. And now you're getting into the real meat of this issue where there oftentimes we talk about this in blanket statements, like there are sweeping generalizations about populations. And you're absolutely right. There are different groups within these ethnic groups. There are different socioeconomic levels that we should look at. But you're absolutely right. This is a complicated, complicated topic. Yeah, very complicated. And in the meantime, there have been a lot of calls for Shu to step down. In your opinion, is there anything that she can do at this point to remedy the pain that she's caused if she remains on the school board? She's shown some self-awareness. She's admitted her inherent bias. What are the actual steps she can take now? I think it's just be um, aggressive in unlearning some of the biases that she has. She has already identified them. She is hearing from the groups who were most harmed by it. And, you know, just take it beyond an apology tour. Like, Mm -hmm. meet with people, talk to parents. San Francisco is a really engaged community, and Black and brown folks that live in that city obviously care about education. And if they're the ones who are telling you they're most hurt by what you said, meet with them Mm -hmm. and find out directly why. It's only going to make her better at her job right now, Mm -hmm. right? Like getting that experience. And in many ways, I think this whole scandal itself feels a little bit like a Rorschach test almost for Black and Asian people. You know, a lot of folks are seeing what they want in this scandal, Mm. but I think at its core is a smart public official misspoke and revealed her own shortcomings, right? And so while everyone's like rushing to condemn or advance whatever their political agenda might be, I think at the heart of this is education and it goes beyond the students. It should be for this individual to learn why what they said was wrong. There's something good that can come out of it. It's just people have to take a breath and and see that. Yeah. And I mean, this is something I've been thinking about, and I think it's the big elephant in the room that I just have to address is all the drama with the San Francisco school district over the years has really put at the forefront the historical divisions that exist between certain parts of the Black and Asian communities in the city. Is this even about education or politics? There's clearly something probably deeper and much more complex here, right? You're absolutely right. Like, I feel like there's always going to be those deeper issues that need to be peeled back, right? And that work will come. I think there are community groups and individuals in the city that are Black and they're Asian that are working together on social issues, that are having dialogues. Like, I think it's easy for us to see the wider coverage. Mm -hmm you know, in news and think there's a a very, very deep division that will never heal. But there are people that are doing this work, you know. And as far as this scandal goes, like, my preference is that what we focus on are the young people. Mm -hmm. Like, at the core of this was an individual who said something about Black and brown parents that was wrong. And if we focus on that, and, you know, 
expanding the understanding that black and brown parents are supportive of academic success in the city, then it's the young people that benefit. Mm. So it's like, you know, the adults, let's make sure we're on the right track because the people who have the, the most to lose are young people in this if we don't handle the fallout from this scandal the right way. I love that. Justin, appreciate your perspective as always. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Justin Phillips is a columnist at The Chronicle. For now, Ann Shu has said that she would not resign. She still plans to face voters in the upcoming school board election in November. Find Justin's latest column and other reporting on Shu and the San Francisco School Board at sfchronicle.com and the Chronicle app. Thanks to Karen Creighton for producing and editing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs>